we knew that it was a big problem just because the conversion rates were really poor, basically. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the trial to paid was poor, the, the churn rate was poor. I mean, all of this is kind of, these are like the health um, signals of the right. product. They're, like they're the books. biometrics of it, yeah. Like yeah, your cholesterol level or whatever it is. So they yeah. tell you, you know, is this a healthy product? And we could tell that it really wasn't, and it just had to be, um, it had to be improved. We never had problems really with top of the funnel. There were always people interested in trying it out and coming to the website and signing up. And, right. and it wasn't really ever a struggle to kind of get people to give it a shot, which was great. Influencer marketing was and just is kind of hot, you know, in the last several years. Mm -hmm. So people were like all about giving it a shot. Uh, but, but just like the, yeah, the actual product uh, user experience was really poor. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling, where I bring on founders of SaaS firms and other companies who have been punched in the face so that they can share their stories so that you don't have to experience the same thing. My guest today is Dave Schneider. He is a self-described SaaS entrepreneur. We had a little chat about that before getting on here, and uh, he does some consulting, but uh, most importantly today, we want to start talking about something called Ninja Outreach, which he created and then sold. So he's not here to promote that today. It's not a self-promotional episode, but he does have <laughs> <laughs> stories and tales of terror and scaling hell to talk about. So Dave, thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do that. So tell us how you got into Ninja Outreach. What made you decide to start this, this company? Sure. Um, we're going back about five years or so, uh, around 2014. And I had been working online already for a number of years um, and doing a variety of things, mainly uh, running some blogs and, and kind of working with advertisers on those sites. Um, I was looking for a business model that seemed more sustainable and reliable, which mm. is what brought me into SaaS because you're thinking, you know, monthly recurring revenue, customers, product, something that Google's not going to take away from you next month. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now, how we kind of stumbled specifically upon Ninja Outreach, it was a series of a couple different coincidences that all just kind of collided. Um, I did a podcast uh, as well, and that was where I met my, my co-founder, Mark. Um, I was talking with Mark about traffic generation, not about SaaS or anything like that. And we were just, we just kind of hit it off. We were talking about, um, you know, what we wanted to do, you know, uh, you know, in that year and things like that. And he mentioned that he had a developer friend and, and basically that maybe the three of us could get together, start working on a product. Um, so there was that going on. And then at the same time, I was doing some customer research. I was emailing um, some bloggers in the niche, guys like Brian Dean from Backlinko, um, Matthew Barbie, um, asking them what, what types of opportunities they saw, what they thought was kind of missing. Um, I was thinking about content promotion software and eventually kind of find my way towards uh, influencer marketing software, um, which is what Ninja Outreach you know, was. And this idea of combining prospecting and outreach in one tool. Um, there were outreach tools at the time. There were prospecting tools at the time. But surprisingly, there were not many tools that I was aware of that did both prospecting and outreach all in one tool. And that seemed kind of like an obvious thing, right? Because anyone that's doing prospecting is going to do outreach. And anyone that's doing outreach had at one point done prospecting. So why don't we do it all in one tool? And then we'll you know, cut out having to integrate or export or transfer data from one tool to another. So that was essentially um, the, the idea behind Ninjarish and how we got started in around you know, June of 2014. Okay. 
so you see this gap in the market where you can reduce the number of steps that people have to take. You can combine tasks. Uh, that's important. There doesn't seem to be a competitor. So it seems like a good idea to move in that direction. Uh, how did you get your first customers? It was all primarily direct outreach um, in the beginning. Uh, we would think of any means that seemed logical um, as a premise for reaching out to somebody. So that could be, hey, they linked to a competitor. A lot of it revolved around the competitors in a sense. Okay. There were tools on the market like Buzzstream, Inkybee. So they had a footprint. Um, they were prospecting and outreach tools. Again, not doing the full suite of prospecting and outreach, but more or less the types of tools that people were using to accomplish these tasks. They were at a price point. So we were trying to understand um, who was talking about these tools, who was linking to them in articles they were writing, um, who, who was featured on their website via testimonials or logos. Um, basically, anybody that we thought, would, you know, who was talking about them on social media, like Twitter, things like that. Um, so anytime we had a premise for reaching out to somebody, we, we would do that. You know, we probably, we sent thousands of emails um, and a lot of them manually, to be honest, mm -hmm. um, to, and say, hey, look, we saw that you were talking about Incubee or, or this and that. We're working on a new tool um, and this is why we think it's great, you know, and this is why we'd love you for you to check it out. And I don't know how well that strategy would work today. Um, you know, it's, it's only been five years, um, but you know, a lot can change in five years. And I do feel that like in 2014, people were a little more receptive to, to tools maybe than they are now. Nowadays, it's kind of like everybody knows there's a lot of tools and they don't have time to review them all. But in 2014, uh, I felt like people were, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Like, yeah, I'd like to be a beta tester. I'd like to try it out. Um, so, we, you know, we got a pretty decent response of at least a couple hundred people that wanted to be in the beta um, beta program. Um, now, I, you're, I know where you, you think this is going. You think that this is the beta program is where the first customer came from, but that's not actually the case. Hmm. Um, no one converted from the beta. Um, it, we, did, we had hundreds of people try it out. Um, but the product wasn't any good and nobody liked it. Um, so nobody converted. It was that simple. Um, but we had a website, we had organic traffic and one day in January of 2015 on, I think the day we went live, um, somebody bought the enterprise plan. <laughs> they just, the someone we had never talked to or heard of or, or knew anything about. They just went and bought it. Um, and they stayed uh, as a customer for quite a long time, like for years. And we did talk to them at some point and, and it seemed like they were doing like some big data stuff and they were like a big company and the money was really nothing to them. Um, but essentially that really kicked off this idea that organic was going to be the way forward for the business, that we were going to work on traffic generation, uh, content, SEO, influencer marketing, mm -hmm. and that, you know, we would just kind of get people to come to the website and check it out. And that was more or less, you know, how, how it went. Hmm. So what I'm hearing is you, you stuck it out, which is the first thing, right? Uh, that a lot of people don't do. Most of the businesses that fail I see give up after like three days of sustained effort. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that it's that low of a number. Uh, they may hang on by getting their bills paid by friends or family or something like that, right? And maybe they have a job. 
um, but uh, that's usually when the businesses die. So you stuck around and, uh, and kept the door open long enough for a customer to walk in. Now, I heard you say that the product at the start wasn't that great, right? And nobody converted in that. So, I mean, first of all, how did that, that uh, feedback feel? And then what did you do about it to improve things so that you could make happy customers? Yeah, so the difficult thing about, um, number one, being a very inexperienced founder, first-time founder who really didn't know anything about software, uh, was that we, you know, we tried to do customer research, but we were often asking the wrong questions. Hmm. Um, we were asking often about features, you know, product features, things like that. Um, but we weren't thinking about some of the basic things, which were like, um, how are you going to buy this product? Are you going to use your credit card or, um, you know, or PayPal or, or how do you want to buy this product? Or is it important to you if it is a desktop app or a web app? Or do you need a mobile version? Hmm. Um, all these, you know, do you have a Mac or do you have a, a PC? Um, these things nowadays, maybe again, not as sort of, I feel like everybody more or less knows that like it needs to be like a web app and it needs to work for everybody and things like that. But back in 2014, there were still desktop apps. Like not everything was web. It was not unheard of to have a desktop app, but that was largely where everything was going. And we had just, we, we were, we built off of legacy technology. We didn't start from scratch. Like my partner, Mark and, and, and his uh, buddy, Paul, they had already built like some technology from actually several years back. And because it was kind of a scraping app, um, it, it lended itself to be a desktop application. And so we just kind of built on top of that. And so we built like a desktop application that only worked for PCs um, and basically only worked with uh, PayPal. And, and essentially this just alienated so many customers, you know, I mean, people would sign up and they'd say, ah, sorry, I've got a Mac, you know, or sorry, PayPal doesn't work in my country or my, my company doesn't use PayPal to basically use tools. So we ran into a lot of those issues really early on, largely because we just didn't properly do customer research and also not really, we didn't do competitive research to really kind of understand like how it was, how things were being done. You know, we were just, we started a new application with an old school mindset. Um, so all of that had to be changed and it took a really long time to change it and like a lot of money and it was, you know, you talk about getting punched in the face and that was just like uh, 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 an onslaught of face punches that year of transitioning the app from desktop to web app and then integrating it with Stripe. And, you know, finally, you know, eventually we did kind of come around. Luckily it didn't take us like too long, too long. L luckily we made the right decision, which was that, this was something we need to address and we need to address it now. I think mm -hmm. maybe some people in that situation would have said, hey, let's just ride it out. You know, let's just ride it out because there were like some desktop applications that I was talking to and I was like, how's it going? They're like, yeah, you know, people don't like desktop apps, but we're doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And we made a, a call early on that we were going to make a hard switch and it, it got a lot easier from there. Okay. So I appreciate the story and the, the honesty. Uh, it's not everyone is capable of admitting that they screwed up <laughs> occasionally and, uh, and did something about it. So interesting uh, point that you bring up about SaaS founders often want to jump into the technical features of the thing, right? And, uh, and you know, like, how are you going to use this? And you're saying, no, back up to the more fundamental questions of where are you going to use this? 
right? What platform are you going to use it on? How are you going to pay for it? Very interesting question that I'm not sure I would have thought of initially, right? I, I, you know, I would have had a range of ways you could pay for the thing, but uh, I wouldn't have been thinking about, oh, what if someone from Nigeria wants to buy this thing or something and they can't, uh, they can't yeah. use PayPal, right? So very interesting. So by, say what, the end of 2015, you had uh, a product that you were happy with? What did that iteration look like? Yeah, right. I don't know if we ever had a product that we were happy with, but okay. uh, I think that's part of the part of the game. But at least by 2015, we had a product that you know it, it, that it, it worked for the majority of people that tried to sign up. You know that it was a web app, and, and we had Stripe, and, and basically, so you could use credit card or you could still use PayPal. Um, so we we at least didn't get the emails of being like, hey. I can't even use this thing or I don't want to download it or whatever. Hmm. Um, but uh, there was still so much left to be uh, built because again, this was another one of those things. Well, this vision of um, it, does, it needs to do prospecting and outreach, right? Nobody's doing prospecting and outreach. Well, I mean, why is nobody doing prospecting and outreach? Probably because it's difficult to build a tool that does both prospecting and outreach well on a bootstrap budget, right? Like if it was that easy, the, the other tools would have been doing it. They weren't for good reason. So we had a poor prospecting tool and a poor outreach tool kind of in a CRM, all of, all of which was not really that high quality. Um, but, but it was at least, it did at least deliver on the value proposition that we had come up with, which was that it was a prospecting outreach CRM. Right. Some people that was enough, um, basically, and they said, you know, I know this doesn't have all the bells and whistles of a dedicated outreach or prospecting tool, but I do really want a prospecting and outreach CRM all in one tool. And so we were able to kind of ride that um, wave. And, I, you know, by the end of 2015, like year one, we were doing around 10 grand a month. So we kind of like established that, you know, it we weren't, you know, we weren't, we definitely weren't killing it and we weren't really paying ourselves any money, but we had at least established that. Um, this was a business that uh, had some legs and people wanted it. And, you know, we, we had uh, proven, I think, that there was reason to kind of keep going. Okay. I, I'm um, thinking back to a recent uh, podcast, which came out the week we're recording this uh, with Peter Loving. And one of the things that he talked about was poor quality SaaS, right? Like poor quality products. Um I was like, huh, really? And, and you're now giving me a clear example of how that comes about, right? You're sort of rushing into a marketplace, trying to fill a need, taking legacy software and slapping it together and going, well, I guess this piece mixes with that and we'll do our best and fix it later. Right? And, uh, and then you yeah. realize, okay, nobody really wants the thing. They, they want the outcome, but they don't like this or they don't, they can't pay for it or something. And what do I have to start now changing around? And how do I get better Lego pieces, I guess, to start putting something together? So how did that process work for you? When, when were you waking up to the fact that like, okay, something really needs to change here? And did you make wholesale changes after the 2015 iteration? Yeah, so I mean, in a lot of it, at least in the beginning, this idea of the, the poor product and where does that come from? And some of it, I think, is this concept of the MVP. I mean, if you mm -hmm. kind of, if you follow this, the typical startup, lean startup mantra, is a lot about the MVP, you know, the minimum viable product. But mm -hmm. I think that has been um, disfigured a little bit into everybody thinking that they can just come out with junk. 
And it's just not true because if there are already competitors on the market and they already have a decent product, then no one's just going to tolerate you because you're new, you know, like they want what they're used to and they're looking for something that basically does as well as what the other options that are out there. Um, so that, you know, that was definitely kind of part of the problem. Um, and we, you know, so we just worked, we just worked really hard on improving the product as best we could. I mean, we hired, we focused all the resources that we had available on development. Um, we hired developers. Um, we, we, you know, forewent or foregoed our, our own salaries to bring on more developers to try to kind of improve the product as we could. Um, and, and essentially uh, just try to get a parity with, with the other kind of competitive products that were out there. Um, you know, I'm just trying to, it, it, we knew that it was a big problem just because the conversion rates were really poor, basically. Mm -hmm. The, the, the trial to paid was poor. The, the churn rate was poor. I mean, all of this is kind of, these are like the health um, signals of the right. product. They're like the biometrics of it. Yeah. yeah, your cholesterol level or whatever it is. So they yeah. tell you, you know, is this a healthy product? And we could tell that it really wasn't. And it just had to be, um, it had to be improved. We never had problems really with top of the funnel. There were always people interested in trying it out and coming to the website and signing up and, Right. And it wasn't really ever a struggle to kind of get people to give it a shot, which was great. Influencer marketing was and just is kind of hot, you know, in the last several years. Mm -hmm. So people were like all about giving it a shot. Uh, but but just like the, yeah, the actual product uh, user experience was really poor. Um, so, we you know, we worked on it for a number of years um, to improve it as best we could. Um, but we, and this is probably another one of the poor decisions uh, that was made, but that's, we really should have started over, essentially. Um, because when you get into a product, you kind of have a, a decision to make of like, well, do I keep kind of, you know you've done something wrong. You know you know that it's not really designed well and stuff like that. So it's like, you kind of keep trying to work with what you have and build onto it, or do you just kind of like wipe the slate clean and like start from scratch? And eventually, and I'm talking like 2017, we actually did do that. You know, we, we completely rebranded. We did a whole UI UX from the ground up rebuild of it. Um, you know, just new, new everything. Um, and that's after that, after that was done. And that was like an eight, eight to 12 month process of actually like from inception to building. I would say the product was, was decent, you know, after that. And we should have done that earlier because it's kind of like, yes, yeah, you really have to bite the bullet to kind of say, all right, we're going to do this now. It's going to cost like a lot of money and it's going to kind of set us back. But then after that, like it, it just grows so much better, you know, that, that, that was really the right call. Well, okay. the right call would have been to do it earlier, but at least we did that at some point. Your story, this part of your story is reminding me of Jonathan Kikebush of SEO Butler, who I had on, and they did like a $30,000 redo of their entire website process systems, everything. And they, before that it had the ramshackle hooked together Lego pieces. Right. And, just chucked it out. And, but there's that sunk cost fallacy of, oh, well, I've got this and this is the devil I understand. Yeah, it fails in this area, but at least I know what it does, right? And wiping right. it out and starting over, it's a risk. It is a risk. Yeah, so it is. very, very cool. Uh, what did you learn, I guess, from that process of rebuilding, redesigning and whatnot? Like, first of all, I guess, do you think you could have made a good, as good a product as you had with the second iteration without going through the suffering to get to that, okay, let's reinvest point. What do you think could have accelerated that if, if not? Uh, I think that 
a lot of the limitation was my own experience and just my own limitations as a first time founder and sort of um, just not really being able to see things clearly because I hadn't really had the experience of it. Um, had I had maybe a mentor or advisors or I don't know, uh, maybe a really, really good mastermind group or something like that. Um, I think maybe somebody could have been like, Dave, uh, this product is not um, up to par. Um, and the sooner you act quickly on basically redoing it, the, the, lo the longer you'll be able to benefit from just kind of a, a better product. And, but I, 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 in my own mind, I don't think just, I, I, for, without having that support group and those people that I could turn to, I just had to sort of eventually get there myself, you know, with obviously my partner and stuff like that. So that's, that's essentially kind of what happened. So, you know, whatever, whatever, there was no way to avoid, I think, um, uh, what, what happened is just sort of, that was what, the natural course of events that was kind of going to take place. Um, but that's why I think, you know, having mentors and advisors and, and people that have, have a few more years of history and experience underneath their belt, they can kind of point you onto those things that otherwise you would not realize until later on. Okay. <sighs> just, I'm pondering, right? Like, so, you have like a, I don't know, three year incubation process kind of before this redesign decision. You don't think you could have accelerated that, although most of it was in your mind, I'm thinking. So at some point you could have. There are a lot of people out there, especially in these SaaS groups on Facebook, who would be delighted to have a $10,000 MRR, right? <laughs> you know, where you were at say 2016 to that. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, you're like, that's not good enough. We're not paying ourselves salaries. More importantly, we're not giving our customers the user experience that we want to give them. I'm curious if a mentor had come to you in 2016 and said, Dave, this product is not up to par, whether you would have listened to them or not. Like, I, I don't know. I feel I might have resisted something like that and gone, screw you, buddy. I'm doing the best that I can. And then gone away and sulked about it and then come back a week later maybe and gone, okay, you're right. <laughs> what do you, what do you Possible. think? Yeah. It depends, I think, you know, on just kind of your relationship with that mentor and if mm -hmm. they have a track record of steering you in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. If this is a guy who is sort of like, he, you know, hey, he was three for three, you know, then I'm probably going to listen to him on the fourth time. If he's just some random guy that, you know, I just kind of hired to coach me, you know, last month and he says this, I might be like, you know what, buddy, you don't really understand. You don't know it like I know it, you know, because right. I'm the founder and this is my product and stuff like that, you know. Right. Yeah. And well, and that's the danger for SaaS founders is to get sucked into that world of, uh, of I'm trying to change the world, right? I'm bringing this idea to the world rather than being sort of realpolitik, objective, almost mechanical, money in, money out kind of uh, perspective on the thing. So I, I like it. So, so sometime in 2017, you get what you believe is a good product together. I'm going to ask this question. Why or how were you able to sell um, when you knew you had a subpar product? Did, did, you, did you compete on price or did you have a special weapon? Like, how did that work? So... You know, I mean, there's a lot of um, a lot of factors, I think, um, because, yeah, the, the product was, you know, it, it was subpar in ways. Um, but in, in, in many other ways, the competitors maybe didn't have great products either. And I heard from people that tried them out. They're like, oh, yours is so much better. And then we have people that say, no, theirs is so much better. And I think in some ways um, it just depends. 
questions a little bit on the user experience. Did somebody sign up on a week when you were having a lot of bugs or not having a lot of bugs? What features were they using? Are those features, did they work well with you and maybe not so well with the other guy? And there are a lot, a, a lot of people that, that don't do their research and they don't actually um, try out anybody else. And they just say, um, okay, I, uh, I Googled influencer marketing software. I came upon Ninja Outreach. I tried it works okay and i'll stick with it and they don't really shop around yeah. and so we had um we had good marketing and people seemed to think that we were a little bit everywhere you know and, and often people felt that the business was a lot bigger than it was um just because we had a lot of buzz around it so i think that that really helped propel um the business forward like i said we always you know generally had a lot of signups um trying it out and you know yeah in in we, we, we worked really hard on customer support and we tried to give a lot of hands-on help and we just tried to do our best to kind of make up for um, our shortcomings. And people really liked that, you know, me and my partner, Mark, that we were involved. I was doing support chat. I did support chat for years, you know, and, and I did the emails and I did all this other stuff. Even when we had support guys, like even when we had support guys, I was like the fourth support guy. And often I was doing more tickets than the other guys. And people like that stuff. I mean, those types of things, people just, they really, they like the root for the little guy and people get kind of emotional and sentimental about it. So you do have those kind of levers when you're, when you're young and hungry that you can kind of like, you can put in a 12 hour day or whatever it is and you can kind of out hustle. Um, and that can kind of make up for a bit of a subpar product and the result of sales. Okay. Okay. Uh, so what I'm hearing is there was some focus on the relationship between you and the customers you had, and <laughs> that counts for a lot. All right. Let's talk about churn for a moment. It's a big thing uh, today, especially, you know, it's, it's one of those big indicators. Uh, I'm suspecting you had quite a bit of churn, uh, at least up to 2017. How did that feel? What did you do about it? Did you heroically try and struggle against it or did you go, eh, <laughs> you know, I, I guess we'll just dump more people in at the top of the funnel where things are really good, right? And, uh, and deal with it that way. Yeah, we, 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 did, we had a lot of churn for a long time. Um, I, I mean, at one point it was probably like 20%, you know, right. I mean like really, really high. And then, you know, you read all these, this, articles and people are talking about negative churn or, or 1% or what it should be and things like that. And you're just like, wow, we are like so far off. And I mean, the reality is I think that the, the answer is really somewhere in the middle. I think most bootstrap software tools in, you know, addressing the SMB market do not have 1% churn. Um, they probably have something between like six and 10, you know, I um, mean, there we were around like 15. So I, I felt like we, we had room definitely to improve, um, but it also like, it wasn't like we were just, you know, uh, we were literally uh, day and night per se. Um, so a lot of work into trying to improve the user experience. Like I said, we did that whole rebrand of the product and stuff like that. And we did, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just product. We like redid the onboarding and the help articles and like everything about it. Um, so that, that definitely helped a lot. Um, we tried some different churn tools, you know, I mean, the, the, the usual stuff, Dunning services, unless churn was an application that we used, um, for, uh, detours and stuff. Um, so we, we you know, we tried to, we, we basically threw the book at it and kind of did whatever we could. We, we did a lot of concierge, um, customer support. So, 
hey, we'll go and get you your hundred, you will do the prospecting for you, you know, and um, uh, we will um, do onboarding for you. And we did all these different types of things, like, you know, meet, meet with them over video. And we just kind of did everything that we could. At the end of the day, I mean, I think when, when I finally sold it and we had gotten turned down to something like 12 or so percent, not great, but, but better than it had been in the past. There was some sort of response to um, the work that we had done. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there were just, you know, a lot of people signing up for the product that just really didn't know what to do. They don't know how to do marketing. They don't know how to do influencer marketing. They just heard that like influencer marketing is something they should be doing. Right. Just, they had heard about it. They read it somewhere, you know, and there, they, they could be some mom and pop shop or whatever it was. And those people are just not really going to last, you know, right. there's just nothing you can really do for them. And then there was a lot of obviously just, uh, uh, involuntary churn with, uh, going out of business or guy left the company or the type of natural types of, of things that just kind of, uh, work with everything. Um, but that, you know, that, that churn really always made me very concerned about the business because I knew that, um, you know, we could only grow so much with that level of churn. I mean, yeah, you can kind of, you do a lot with top of the funnel, but it, it has limits, you know? So um, that, that always just made me concerned that, you know, the product was not really addressing um, a need or a pain point or that it wasn't the right approach to this problem. And that, you know, at the end of the day, um, people just didn't want to sit behind their computer and prospect for influencers and outreach to them. That just wasn't something that people wanted to do. I, I thought maybe people would rather like a marketplace approach where they would just kind of put out uh, a description of what they were looking for and influencers would apply and then and maybe they would work with an agent or something like that. So I was always a little bit concerned about our approach to the influencer marketing problem. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I, I can't really say we really solved the problem. We just kind of mitigated it as best we could. Okay. Well, and it's interesting what you say about folks coming in at a, a low level of awareness, like the mom and pops who heard about this influencer marketing thing. And then what are you supposed to do to respond to that? Are you supposed to have this huge library of content to educate them and help bring them up to, hey, here's how you can use this, right? Or do you qualify them out somehow? <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of content and stuff, but it's just kind of like people don't want to read it or they just don't have the time or whatever and we had con we had you know everything was written video you know we, yeah. we had we had all the stuff but people don't have time okay so uh let's get into the the sale of this thing uh, what what user count were you at by that point Approximately. Um, i mean we were we were less than a thousand customers okay you know for sure and it wasn't like a freemium product or anything like that so there weren't like a ton of users there were there were some users that had it for free from like an AppSumo launch and different things that we did. So maybe like in the thousands, like total, but that's mm -hmm. about, you know. Okay. What got into the person's head who bought this thing uh, that, that made them want to buy it? How did that go down? I think that they were on the hunt for software, um, obviously, and they were really interested in the influencer marketing space because it is okay. a hot, space uh, and they saw a lot of opportunity in the business that we had built um, we had just gone through this whole rebrand and, mm -hmm. and done all this good stuff to improve the kind of the product and it did have a very strong top of the funnel um, so there was a lot of positives about the business mm -hmm. that made it um, attractive um, and also I mean we were just uh, we, we were willing to have the conversation I mean, a lot of I mean 
most software entrepreneurs, um, I mean, finding that time in, in a person's life when they're willing to sell a business, uh, it, it's just like a needle in a haystack, right? Because you have the majority of somebody's time, they're like, no, I just want to work on growing it. I just want to keep working on growing it. Or, hey, I've got this thing. It's passive. It doesn't take me too much time. just kind of produces income every month. So I'm just going to let it go. Or, you know, they've already sold it, basically. Or, you know, and someone just bought it. So we, we were just, we were willing to have the conversation and discuss how this could work. And eventually we made a deal. Okay. Do you know what indicators they were looking at other than just the, okay, you're in this niche. I, I want software. I'm looking for my own Lego pieces to put together. Uh, I can definitely see a draw from their end uh, of the idea that, okay, this, this at least is collecting potential customers, right? Uh, for this or related uh, products or services, right? It's a way of at least attracting people to get them into a room and then I can do whatever I want as the owner of that data now, right? Uh, after that point, what else were they looking for? I, I think people are, they're often looking for some sort of engine where you've built, mm -hmm. it's not enough just, just on the product is, you know, the product is important, but that's just one part of the equation. The other things are, you know, the team that you've built, you know, the processes that you've set up, you know, because when you transition from one owner to another, it's a huge thing. I mean, you're literally just like taking out the guy who knows everything about this business and then you're putting in somebody who effectively knows nothing about this business. So if the right um, processes and everything are not in place, um, it's going to really struggle to kind of transition. And we had, we had built a um, good team, around 20 people really quality um, people, in my opinion, who were great at their job and they had been, they, you know, they, they loved the brand and the product and they were working on it and, and we had good systems in place and things worked smoothly, more or less without me. I mean, I was, I was responsible for doing some things from time to time, making decisions here and there, but for the most part, you know, it, it worked kind of well without me. Um, so, uh, you know, so there was definitely that aspect of thing. Obviously, business metrics like churn mm -hmm. and, and revenue growth were important. Um, the, you know, the history of the business, the fact that it was, you know, four or five years old and that um, basically, you know, we had been kind of running in. You could kind of see the records. They want to see all the, obviously the records of the growth and the financial um, sort of uh, stats uh, from all these years. And, you know, they're, they're looking for a story and then they kind of understand that if I come in and I put in a new vision on this business um, that I think, you know, is maybe overlooked by, by these current founders who are just two in the business for too many years already, um, do I think I can accelerate the growth? And so I think that that, you know, all those things just kind of came together. Okay. Uh, regarding how they built up to the price level, was there an independent valuation or did they come to you and say, we think it's worth X amount and we'll pay you so many times the ARR or something like that? It was that. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> there was no independent okay. valuation. We had a number in our mind and yeah. basically um, they had a number in the company. Okay. Makes sense. And obviously it was a, it was a good decision. Um, I guess we can wrap up just before we do that. You've talked a little bit about systems and processes and I want to ask a question to dig into that a little bit. When did you realize and at what revenue point were you at when you realized, Oh heck, we've got to concentrate on systems and processes or was it like that at all? Uh, it was basically like that from the very beginning, okay. <laughs> but I think that's okay. part of my personality. I'm, I'm a big mm -hmm. business and processes that's guy, right. so I'm always kind of, 
putting in, uh, trying to set up uh, the, the, the right spreadsheets and documents to kind of explain how stuff gets done. Mm -hmm. And then you just build on that and it just evolves and, you know, new things, you know, new things come up, new people kind of come up. Um, you add new rows to the spreadsheet you start tracking new things. And then eventually, you know, uh, it, it just eventually just kind of builds on that. So, you know, I, I don't think it's ever too early to mm -hmm. invest in systems and processes. Um, however, um, more practically speaking, because I know that that's not everyone's favorite thing to do, and then everyone's a systems and process guy or girl. You know, I think it's it's when when the team gets big enough that you no longer sort of know everything that everyone is doing. Hmm. That's when you really need like systems and processes. That could be like around the ten person mark or something like that, just approximately, um, because you're now a bit of you're, you're an extra sort of level away from the business that. You know, if you don't have systems and processes in, in place, you're basically working off of blind faith. You know, you're just kind of hoping and assuming that people are doing things kind of correctly. So, you know, when it's just a couple guys, everybody can kind of just like get stuff done, you know. But then when you get a few more, you really need those processes to kind of guide people. And, and so, yeah, that's the way I would approach I'm, it. I'm glad to hear you say that. And that perspective is rare <laughs> to bring it in from yeah. the beginning. Because that's what my company does is, is, uh, is document and improve systems and processes for other oh, companies. Cool. Right? Huge. So, yeah. uh, but getting folks to understand that in the SaaS field, that this is valuable and essential, ultimately essential, uh, for you to A, get out of being in your business and B, potentially to sell it someday. It's been a struggle. You know, it, yeah. has, it has not been a great uh, niche for me. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Crazy. So, it, it seems obvious. Yeah, people sometimes they just don't know what they need. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's true. So you sell this thing, um, you, you get a pot of money. I guess you split it with your partner somehow. What, <laughs> what did you do after that? Did you rest on your laurels, go to a vacation in Aruba, take some time to think about what did you, you know, what do I do next or did you jump into the next thing? And when was this? This sale. When did that? Uh, so this would have been um, about around March of last year, uh, okay. 2018. So about a year ago or okay. so. And I mean, basically, um, you know, yeah, yeah, the money comes in, and that's cool for I don't know, like a second, basically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wow, yeah, cool. But then it's you know, but then you know, you still kind of like you know, you gotta go feed yourself that day. Like you know, it, it, there's there's a lot of normalcy that still uh, dictates that day. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of brings you down to earth and it's like, okay. And, and by the way, it's just, I mean, I, I can't disclose the amount, but I yeah. can say it's not like uh, I can retire uh, and never work again for money. Right. It was like a, a healthy payday for a, for a couple of years of work. And I was you know, happy to kind of be rewarded with it. But, you know, at the same time, I knew that I, I would need to eventually do some more work. You know, it just, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't going to sit and do nothing for a while, nor would I want to. Um, so, you know, What's interesting, one of the things that I did kind of, I, that I did realize is that you know, there, there are just so many opportunities out there and um, for good reason, you know, uh, when you're working on one business, you don't sort of see them um, because you're focusing and that's fine, um, but they're there. And when I did sell Ninja Outreach, all of, all of a sudden there was you know, there's a consulting gig here and then there was a software thing here and there's all these different things that basically kind of presented themselves now that I was free, you know, so just know that I think, um, cause it's always a little worrying. Like if I'm going to sell this and well, then what will I do? You know, stuff's going to come up, you know, I mean, it, and, and more now when you have actually maybe had like an exit and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So 
basically, I tried the best I could to not work for like a couple months. Um, I more or less failed into some work, basically. I started doing some consulting and stuff like that and, and whatnot. Okay. How can people get a hold of you and what would you like them to get a hold of you for? Uh, yes, I would say I'm only active on email. <laughs> I don't okay. do really social media. Um, so, and, uh, so my email now, um, I, I just get my personal one. It's literally D-S-C-H-N-E-I-D 2010gmail.com, dschneid2010gmail.com. Um, and get in touch with me about anything. All right. Literally anything. So. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, I really appreciated your honesty in telling me your story about Ninja Outreach and that journey from the, the kind of stumbly start figuring it out as you went along, building the airplane while you're falling to the ground kind of thing, uh, redesigning the entire thing from the ground up and then, uh, and then exiting. Uh, and that's, that's just a very useful story, I think, for you know, both myself and our listeners. So I appreciate you being here. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week.